Hello, welcome to the Sligo Socialist Podcast Football Special. Um, I'm delighted to be here with uh, Kevin Cray, who's a socialist activist in Dublin and a PATH supporter, and a local Sligo Rover supporter, Donald Ryan. How are you, lads? How's it going? How's things? Yeah, so I thought we'd kind of do this, um, you know, with the Euros being on, there's a lot of excitement. Obviously a great time. I'm really enjoying them. Um, when a tournament like this is on, it's great. You know, I think we'll go, we'll go on to talk about you know, some of the negatives of football, but like, I think we need to also emphasize like how brilliant it is when uh, you, you go to see football and football's on and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, how have you been finding it so far? Uh, yeah, uh, like yourself, I've really enjoyed it. Um, I think it's it's still a bit surreal seeing games with crowds um, where, where there's a bit of an atmosphere and stuff like that. So that's something that's been lacking in all football for the last few years. And as well, it's enjoyable to see you know, kind of so-called smaller teams come up against the bigger teams. They're, they're playing certain structures, which is uh, is nice to see. They're trying to frustrate the big sides, you know. But in cases, say, Portugal last night, they were able to allow their class to come through in the end in the last 10 minutes. But it's really been enjoyable, yeah. Yeah, I have to agree with that, to be honest. It's just great that there's so much football on all the time. I mean, I'm a big football fan, so I'd watch anything as long as I'm able to, to watch it. like So having this much football on all the time is an absolute blessing for me anyways. And the standard of football has been pretty good as well. And, um, you know, there's been a few upsets. Like, you know, you look at Poland and Slovakia, you reckon you thought Poland probably would have done a job there, but Slovakia were more than able for them, just one off the top of my head. Like, so yeah, it's been it's been really good so far. One thing I want to point out as well, I'm a, I'm a lover of the new jerseys every time a new jersey comes out on the tournament. So, like I so said, you mentioned Slovakia there. Their jersey's beautiful and there's been a couple yeah, of other ones. Yeah, it's tasty, all right. Yeah, the Finland yeah. one was today is nice as well. So, yeah. Yeah. And uh, obviously Ireland aren't in it. So, like, do you have a specific team you're shouting for? Or have you had a few quid on a team? or Anybody but England. <laughs> yeah, I'd kind of say that as well. I'd like to see Wales and Scotland do well, uh, but on the kind of the business end of it, I think I did, I didn't put any bets on, but my money would be either on Italy or Portugal. All right, I've Italy back, so that's happy to hear that. <laughs> what about yourself, Donald? Uh, I would I wouldn't be much of a gambling man now myself, but uh, I. People were saying Italy were kind of dark horses coming into it now, but I was chatting to one of the lads last night. And he said they're not even dark horses; they're just horses. Like yeah, they look yeah. like they look like they could go the distance, you know. And uh, they kind of slipped under the radar going into the going into the tournament. They had played eight games, they won them all, they scored seventeen goals, yeah. and they didn't concede any. Yeah. So I mean, that's savage form to be in going into a tournament. I, I don't know how that wasn't picked up on a bit more, to be honest. It seems to be as well as that's what happened the last time they won it. It was kind of like there yeah. you know, wasn't a huge amount of talk. Talk yeah, they've no, they've no superstars as such like they would have had before mm. with the likes of Perlo and Totti and players like that. There's nobody there that you'd like a focal point. So they're they're, yeah. they're a team working together as opposed to a couple of superstars. Yeah, so yeah, it's, it's exciting. Um, so then football's been news over the last while for various reasons. We had that big story blowing about the Super League, and it really highlighted what money is doing to football, I suppose, um, working-class people's relationship to it. You've written a lot about it, Kevin. What are your what are your thoughts since that? I mean, it's come out last week that, you know, the penalty even that they're going to give them is going to be minute. It's like 20 million or something between the teams in, in England that were involved in this. But like, what is you know what since the fallout's happened now? What is kind of your perspective on it now? Um, and has it changed at all? 
Um, as I said, yeah, I, I did write about it a while back. Uh, but one of the things I've kind of found since is that I think the clubs, un- and I wrote about this at the time, I think the clubs underestimated the, the response of, of the supporters, you know, because they wanted, and they said this in their documents, that they wanted to kind of ditch, I can't remember the term that was used, but they wanted to ditch their like historic fans, essentially. They were okay with losing those fans because they'll gain new new fans in the Super League. So I think they underestimated the the um, the fan power and the anger that would rise up, particularly at a local level, you know, we saw protests outside Stamford Bridge. We saw the game abandoned by Man United fans against Liverpool. We saw protests in Liverpool and so on. So I think clubs underestimated that and, and were forced to backtrack. Uh, I read a really good book recently called uh, The Club, written by a guy named Jonathan Clegg and two guys and Joshua Robinson. And it basically spoke about the kind of the start of the Premier League and how that was a breakaway league. And essentially, it was about these top clubs wanting more money. And 30, 20, nearly 30 years later, the same things haven't changed. And I think the clubs have realised that now, with the fallout of the Super League, that you know they're not going to get away with it as easily. So it's off the table for now, but it'll come back 100%. Uh, and as for the defiance, you know, UEFA were only pissed off because they weren't going to get their, they weren't going to get their their cut. That's that's why they seemed like the kind of noble cause and all of this, even though they're not. You know, we've seen even uh, the fallout from UEFA with uh, the the issue with Christian Eriksen at the weekend. That they told the Danish FA that they had to play the game no matter what, otherwise they'd have a they'd have um they give Finland the three 0 win if they didn't fulfil the fixture. So, you know, UEFA are rotten right at the core, just like FIFA are, but the clubs are also bad in that regard, and I think they'll stall this for maybe and kick it down the road for maybe another three or four years. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting the way, like even, um, and I think you mentioned that on your blog, like, you know, you had Sky Sports as well, um, kind of yeah. uh, presenting that they were against this. This is awful. Sky uh, Sports are one of the main reasons uh, for the Premier League's uh, coming about in the first place. You know, they were the ones that were going to be getting this, big money deal and, and kind of looking after the Premier League clubs in that sense. And I would recommend anyone to seek out that book called The Club. Uh, it's a fantastic read. Um, but yeah, Sky Sports taking the moral high ground just like UEFA had as well. You know? There was talk going around last night of um, your man from UEFA, Alexander Cheferin or whatever, and the owner of PSG. They were talking about trying to fork out a huge broadcast deal. I'm not, I can't remember exactly where it was. I think somewhere like the Middle East or something. But um, it looked like UEFA are willing to gloss over all of PSG's financial fair play <laughs> issues if they can get this deal over the line. So that's just that's just another example of uh, now again I'm not sure how what how much truth there is in that, but I did see that a couple of places last night. Just kind of rumors starting to circulate that something like that might be on the card. So again, it's just another example of UEFA just kind of playing up to looking for more money basically. And uh, like you said there about the the whole Denmark Christian Eriksen incident I mean it's disgracefully carry on I mean those no those players weren't in a fit state to make a decision on a game I mean they would have been going through some serious trauma just even looking at that I mean you know you could see the way they were all made a ring around Eriksen mm-hmm. when they were trying to revive him and everything and like you know they were in no fit state to decide whether they were going to play today or tomorrow never mind actually play the game you know 
Yeah, certainly. And like Denmark were favourites to win that. Denmark are Denmark are a good side, and you know, and Ericsson was actually playing. A, he was actually having a, a fantastic game up until that. Mm. You know, he was really starting to take things by the scruff of the neck and drive Denmark on a wee bit. But um, you would have expected Denmark to put them away in the end, for sure. Mm. There's another issue as well with with the Ericsson incident is a kind of a, an issue of players being overworked as well. You know, you think about preseason, all the top leagues go to. Uh, the Middle East and go to Asia and play big tournaments every year, every single season. Then they play their their tournaments, or then they play their their, their domestic leagues, and then they play their the European leagues. They play their domestic cups. So there's another argument as well with football at the top end of players being overworked, and it's only for profit. You know where the where the 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 Asian cups played or the cups in Qatar played. It's for it's for profit, and that's that's. That's the only reason why clubs are, are pushing for these things. So they're forced to do that with clubs. And then, you know, they have to play international tournaments and all that kind of stuff as well. So this is all this is all about bottom line and how much money that different clubs and big clubs and different associations can can make out of uh, out of the players. They're milking them dry. Just to kind of bring it back to the Super League thing there, the Super League kind of masked over when it was announced and of course the fallout to that was huge and of course that was what was grabbing all the headlines but kind of what kind of went in under the radar there was a uh, UEFA announced a, a reform of the Champions League as we know yeah. it so like I think it's something like the, there's like 10 teams in a group now or something and they all have to play each other twice so like this, this n- with no regard given to player welfare there at all it's just adding like a, a good bit more games to an already hectic schedule I mean players are going to be burning out like and you know maybe I'd hope not but like you could see the likes of something like that what happened to poor Christian Eriksen happening again you know and again the bottom line it just comes all down to more games because more TV rights just more money at the end of the day absolutely and those reforms as well we're going to we're doing it was it wasn't obviously as like explicit as the Super League but it was still working in favour of the larger clubs that they were more likely to get to kind of continue to be in the Champions League as well but yeah, yeah. It was gonna. It was kind of gonna be almost a close shot, but not quite. Yeah. Uh, historic results would mean that big clubs would be essentially invited right. every year into the Champions League. So Scar- say, historic coefficient or something like that. Yeah. Right? So say Arsenal, for example, who would have an okay record. You know, they might get invited in, and then I think possibly one other club. So if uh, you know one of the big Italian teams miss out or something like that, you know, they get invited in. So it's 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 crazy. It's just uh, about kind of you know, uh, cashing in on the big clubs. Um, well, I think the Nations League uh, or the um, conference, UEFA conference thing is a good idea for smaller countries uh, at the same time. I think it's crazy that, you know, big big domestic teams or big domestic leagues are still in that as well. I think it kind of defeats the purpose a little bit. Um, but again, that's just a way for, for milking in on every single thing that they can. Mm. Yeah, I agree with you there, Kevin. Um, like, of course, my own club, Sligo Rovers, are, are in it, which I'm absolutely mm. buzzing about. And then across the water, I'm a, I'm a Spurs fan, and they're in it as well. So I'm not too buzzing about that. You know, I'd mm. rather Spurs be competing a bit higher. But um, it does kind of take away from the whole, you know, it's mad a club like Sligo, a place the size of Sligo, could a couple of good a couple of good results there in the qualifying rounds. We could, be, we could get mm. into the group stages, you know, whereas... You know, it's massive for them, but Spurs are seeing this as like a huge disappointment. You know, there's another thing I saw today in relation to to the Nations League stuff that, and to uh, Europa League that 
that um, apparently the kind of qualifying rounds that they're not going to be allowing travel and, and stuff like that as well. Fair enough, in a COVID world, you can understand. But at the same time, when the group stage opens up, apparently there'll be travel allowed for away fans. So in the, in the, in the qualifying rounds, the smaller clubs don't have an option to travel, but only the bigger clubs to get to the group stages can. Which again shows where UEFA's priorities are. And like, what do you see as some of the ways to counterweight a lot of this? Um, do you have, you know, what can ordinary people do to try and make, you know, football more about, you know, what it was historically, you know, a working class game, the people had access to it, um, even things like better ownership models. What do you think are some of the things that can be done to try and fight back against these trends? Well, I think probably the best thing to do would be do nothing. Just don't go, you know, just because like if there's no one, if there's no one going to the games, there's like there'll be no, it's probably see your, your gate receipts drop heavily. I mean, I know that probably wouldn't happen realistically, but like would that would probably be the only way to hit them really where it hurts, you know? Yeah, I think, uh, I think you're right there, but practically... With the size of some of the bigger European clubs, as you say, Donald, uh, I don't think it would really happen because you'll always have your kind of football tourists. But I think at a, at a domestic level, I think that's where the pressure needs to be put on. We see fan power work and we saw the game, the Chelsea game, um, outside the protests outside Stamford Bridge where Peter Cech was sent out to try to calm the crowd. We saw the Man United supporters storming the stadium and storming the pitch in protest, you know. So I think organised protests at a domestic level are things that can get the ball rolling. Um, there would have to be a lot of joining the dots uh, at, a, at a kind of higher level, Europa League and, um, and Champions League level. I think you'd need kind of a fan cohesion amongst that. So I don't know how practical that might be, but I think for, for sure local, um, local level, i.e., you know, the local Premier League supporters of Manchester United and Arsenal and, and so on to be able to put the squeeze on their owners. And local level, you know, boycotts might work, you know, uh, in a smaller, in a smaller in a smaller way, you know, for example, like maybe even what what some what a lot of supporters don't tend to do because because away games are different. Well, if supporters were to boycott away games as opposed to home games, because most of the, the quote-unquote real fans will go to the away games, whereas the football tourists are less likely to go to the away games. So that would be noticeable on the pitch for the players and for the, and for the you know, travelling board of directors and that kind of stuff. So, I mean, this is all kind of speculative, but I think these are the kind of direct actions at a domestic level in the big leagues that can be done. And then when they become more successful or if they take hold then a joining of the dots of the bigger European clubs like one of the obviously one of the leagues that's always brought up is the Bundesliga mm. and you know you have things like they still have terraces there there's affordable terraces like yeah you, you can often get into a Dortmund game for a tenner or stuff like that um, they have the 50 plus one ownership model meaning that the fans own the largest amount of shares now from reading, uh, you know, a couple of a couple of articles on it, it you know, it kind of ties in what you're saying. I think 
it didn't just happen overnight. What you had is actually really active fan bases that were like fighting for a lot of these things and, and they actually have to stay active. Like they, they did have like actually engage in protests to have like, you know, I think a lot of the, you know, the ultras of certain clubs were very active and ensuring that they were able to hold on to some of the kind of more democratic structures. Um, could you talk a bit about, a bit of any, you know, a bit about those structures and also comparatively, you know, maybe with the League of Ireland or um, even, you know, obviously clubs like Barcelona and Real Madrid um, are, are similar as well. Yeah, so um, the German model is a good model, and I think it's the most practical model to, that could be used in other leagues in Italy and in England. And um, there is a, a, I'll talk about in a minute, there is a slight difference in Spain. But 50 plus one means kind of 50% plus one share of ownership has to be, as far as the German uh, Federation's constitution goes in football, has to be a uh, has to be implemented, right? So that, as you said, that that enables safe standing terraces. Something I want to actually write about. I've written about it before, um, and the the practicalities of it. Rail terrace and Celtic have them there, and I know other clubs like uh, Aston Villa and uh, a few other clubs in England are looking to do that as well. Which means cheaper tickets. So you look at the Premier League, and it's been sanitized through kind of kicking working class people out of the terraces and putting seats in and stuff like that. So that's that's been a kind of conscious thing, I think, over a long term. I think to take it away from the working class, you know, football hooligan scum as they would have seen, because all working class people are hooligans and scum as far as, you know, rich people are concerned when it comes to football. So in Germany, there was active protests, I think it was sometime mid-90s where they kind of forced this through. But I think what needs to be uh, noted is that it can be open to abuse this this 50 plus one rule if you look at RB Leipzig because what they've done, they've managed to kind of bypass the 50 plus one thing by having really expensive shares and, and a handful of um, Red Bull directors are the, the fan ownership and the rest is Red Bull. So they've managed to kind of, uh, they've managed to be able to pump their own money into it plus uh plus kind of get their board of directors in there and make it look like it's 50 plus one. So it's open to, it's open to being, uh, to being exploited. But I think in England, that would be the best model. You look at clubs in the top two divisions and, you know, there's American owners, there's um, owners from the Middle East, there's owners from Asia in the Premier League and the Championship. They won't be, they won't give up their clubs. But if the British government bring in legislation to ensure that there's a 50 plus one model, they'll be forced to give up part of the clubs that they own. And I think that's, that'd be the most practical there. Um, I think uh, I think in Spain, all the clubs bar four, which are Osasuna, I think Betis and Real Madrid and Barcelona are all, uh, are all privately owned. So those four clubs that I mentioned are fan owned, but, to be a board member, for example, at Madrid or at Barcelona, you need to be extremely wealthy to get on the board. Uh, the decisions are made in the sense that the board make all the decisions, but the membership vote for the board. So it's not really that democratic, but the ownership model goes so far as electing the board and all the decisions then are made by the very wealthy middle-aged middle uh, men on the board. Um, so that kind of model would be something to steer clear of for all sorts of football. But uh, I mean, maybe Don, you want to talk a bit about League of Ireland structures? Yeah, well, I mean, we'll just take 
the Dundalk example, I suppose, is mm. the, the perfect example of how this really is not the way to go. I mean, you look at Dundalk over the last few years, even if you don't follow League of Ireland, you'll have heard of their success. First, their second Irish club to ever get into a group stage of a European competition, the first team to ever win a European group stage match. I mean, they're the one, I think, six out of seven, the league six years out of seven or something like that. You know, they're... The Ireland's nearly second most successful club on the back of that run, like, mm-hmm. and um, two years ago they got taken over by an American investment group called Peak Six, and everyone thought that all right, they're just gonna kick on now. You know, they're after getting a heap of money that's gonna be pumped into them, and you know, the Dundalk gonna be unstoppable for years to come. And it's literally just gone the opposite way. I mean, the problem with Dundalk is there's nearly too much interference from the board, and mm. they've just been an absolute shambles on and off the field this year. I mean, you're talking about serial winners going to an absolute laughing stock they're down languishing near the bottom of the table they had a shocking result the other night against Waterford who were tipped to go down and they were played Waterford played them off the park um, you know managers they've been without a manager now for months uh, nobody knows what's going on you have journalists reporting that one man is signing a contract there this evening and other journalists saying that there's another fella coming in instead you know and uh, it's just like it, their investment, their, there's been too much meddling going on and nothing is nothing productive is being done. I think one of the problems there as well is that there's been no investment in any of the uh, structures outside of the playing staff because they've invested heavily into, into a lot of duds that they've brought in from overseas, but they've invested heavily into the squad where they're playing crazy wages. And fair enough, players will take it, that's fine. But I don't know if you guys have ever been in, in Oriel Park, but it's a horrible place to go. Mm. The away end is awful. You know, mm. it's crumbling terraces. There's no roof. You're kind of fenced in. You know, you're treated with contempt. You know, it's not a nice place to be because you're in one of the worst sections of the worst ground in the country watching a game on a terrible pitch that only for a bit of work done, I think, three or four years ago, that has improved somewhat, you know. So I think Peak Six just it reminds me of uh, Arcarga, I think they were called down in Cork. Similar kind of idea. They invested in Cork or they bought Cork and that nearly destroyed Cork. How that came to Cork the Cork City Co-op. Um but with Peak Six I think it's it was all a, I think this American owner wanted to have this kind of success and Champions League success and wanted to make money off it. But you know Anyone who knows League of Ireland knows you can't make money in the League of Ireland. You're not going mm-hmm. to. It's not practical. If you invest in the League of Ireland, you're not investing in the sense that you'll get your money back. You know, a Pats, for example, we were we were saved by Gary Keller, who was a property developer, right? Kelleher um, been in Nama and all during the during the, the uh, during the recession, but. He kind of, I think he came in with the idea of having an academy at Pats and a new stadium and all that kind of stuff. And then he learned after after pumping loads of money into the force team over about two or three years that you can't buy success. So he had to reevaluate things from about 2010 onwards. And since then, to be fair, stopped us from moving to Tala, which is what the board previous to Kelleher's board wanted and invested into a lot of local stuff. And, you know, even ambitiously uh, proposing the Richmond Arena um, and that's been kind of uh, voted down in Dublin City Council but I think there's still there might be plans to redevelop Richmond Park but they're they're long-term goals you know I've seen Sligo's plan a few weeks ago looks fantastic uh, it's a it's a long-term ambitious step 
Uh, United had another plan um, last week, which is a little less ambitious, but it's still a fantastic step forward. So I think you need ownership models and structures within the league. Uh, like 100% fan ownership can work in the league, uh, but you need you need not to focus on uh, just instant success on the pitch because it's not practical. Not practical in any sense. What you need, without a shadow of a doubt, is uh, is long term investment. Um, you know, look at the structures like Pats have probably the, arguably the best uh, underage setup because they've invested money in there and we're, it's starting to pay dividends. Sean Hoare, Jamie McGrath um, came through Pats. You know, you know, Jamie McGrath is now a full Ireland international and that kind of stuff. So I think this long term planning is something that Dundalk completely missed the boat on. They they've really really managed to they managed to kind of destroy themselves in the process of looking for instant success that hasn't come. Whereas you look at Shamrock Rovers and their success at the minute that's been built for probably the last you know five years or so. They stuck by a manager. They have a new academy. Uh, it's an amazing setup that they have there, and they've invested and looked at long term, five six years down the line, and it's starting to pay dividends. Dundalk haven't done any of that. Yeah. They also have Dermot Desmond pumping money into them, but that's a story for another. That's another debate to be had. That's because their uh, ownership model is a bit flawed. Uh, Dermot Desmond, I think, owns about twenty five percent of Shamrock Rovers, and uh, Shamrock Rovers supporters own roughly the rest of it, mm. or give or take on the figures. So uh, they their ownership model is open to um, is open to being exploited as well. Mm. <laughs> but yeah, but no, you, I have to agree with you there, Kevin, about the the long term success. I mean, when you look at Sligo Rovers. Uh, when we won the league and, you know, off the back of it, we had a run in Europe for maybe two or three years after that. Um, we didn't invest on the field at all, really. I mean, the squad from, from 2012 when we won the league up until now, I mean, we started like up here, the squad declined, I think it's fair to say, for a yeah. good while. We were down the wrong end of the table there for a good while and now we're coming back up because we invested off the pitch. The showgrounds got done up. There's yeah. a, a fine after-turf facility there. We you know, money was invested into into the youth. And uh, I think out of the, the whole panel there that played a game against Strahada there last weekend, nine of them came through the academy that were either on the field or on the bench. So, like, that just goes to show. And, like, I'd say of the starting 11 that you'd like to see, like, of our strongest 11, I'd say, but you'd have about four or five of them in there that did come up through the ranks at Rovers. So, that it just goes to show you, like, you need to invest. It's, you can't buy the instant success, as you were saying. You know, you need to kind of, sow the seeds and let them grow like we're seeing the fruits of the money from 2012 when the league we're seeing we're seeing the success of that now Don could you talk about some of the plans that Sligo Rovers have announced recently yeah well it looks like you know there's, there's going to be like an overhaul on the showgrounds you know there's going to be a museum put in a cafe you know it's, it's like Sligo Rovers there are a community club at the end of the day they're owned by the fans the showgrounds is owned by the community it can never be sold um, which is a it's a it's fantastic, really, you know. So they really want to embed the showgrounds into the community. It's not just going to be a football ground. It's going to be it's going to serve the whole area of Sligo Town, Maravoy, you know, the whole lot. It's going to be a, a fantastic amenity. Now, Kevin, I know you said it there. It's a, it's an ambitious project, but I don't think it really is ambitious. I mean, they've laid out their targets over seven or eight years, and it's going to cost about seventeen million. But like, it's very achievable year on year if you if we meet the targets that we think we're going to that we've set out for ourselves, which is doable, you know, on a year-to-year basis. There's no reason why this can't get done and get over the line, and uh, it'll certainly serve Sligo very well indeed. 
I think uh, the, the, the ambition thing is, it wasn't more as like, it, it, it might not happen, but ambition as in, in a positive, like it's something that- Yeah, like, I know, I, I, under, I understand yeah, yeah. And that's an, like another, I suppose, another important thing that the, the showgrounds can't be sold because obviously, you know, there's a big campaign that's just been launched about it is the Save Talca Park campaign. <laughs> Um, they're looking to turn it into a private development, which would obviously um, be a disaster. Would you tell us a bit about that, Kevin? Yeah, so back, I think it was about six or seven years ago, um, the board of Shells, I think with pressure from the FEI and pressure from Dublin City Council, had agreed to sell Talca Park. Uh, not even sell Talca Park, sorry. When Shells were in distress, the Dublin City Council essentially acquired Talca Park because Shells were... were screwed and on their last legs basically um so that happened about six or seven years ago um and the decision was made between the feoi dublin city council and shells and bowls to basically redevelop daily mount park which it looks like a really good um really good plan in in the sense of community structure there's going to be a library there and there's going to be a i think there's going to be a theater and shops and stuff like that at daily mount but everything they seem to be forgetting is Shelbourne and they're forgetting about Shells in, in all of this because the board of Shells, I think the board has since changed the Shells but the decision has been copper fastened so that land is designated to be housing so on the football side of things Shells are going to be moving a few a few kilometres over the way to Daily Mount whenever that's going to be happening and um, I think that the reason why Save Talca Park campaign has started now and not a few years ago is because this is happening soon and it's planned to be happening the money has been released um i think uh, probably about six eight weeks ago or the plans to to release the, the funds for the redevelopment to begin um so that's why i think the, the plan the campaign rather has started now i mean i don't speak for for shells fans there you know you would have read my thing nigel i don't particularly uh, like Shelbourne as a football club yeah just just starts it <laughs> the, the, the whole article starts with I hate shells I, like, <laughs> I, I wish they would all die or something like, something like no, I, said, I said I hope their club slowly dies yeah. you know, I wouldn't wish any, any malice on their supporters you know? <laughs> well but uh, no like, um, so I've, I've, no, I've no love for shells in that sense but as a public space like you know as a Pat supporter I've had some of my best ever days supporting Pats there it's a place where, you know, it's rich in history, you know, not just shells, but, you know, Home Farm, Drumcondra, Shamrock Rovers, you know, they've all played there. There's been Ireland internationals played there, you know, even big, big boxing games and boxing matches and, and, and things like that, you know. So as a space there, like Talca Park is a massive amenity. I believe it could be practical to have these two stadiums that have been so close to each other for 100 years to have them in Dublin City. You know, they serve different communities, you know, Drumcondra, Ballybock and that kind of part of the world. And then on the other side, you have Fibsbury and Cabaret and stuff like that at Daily Mount. So I think I think it's practical to have two stadiums there. And as for the Shells campaign, I think it's getting good media attention now. I do fear it might be too little too late um, because this seems to be fairly copper fastened. But then on, on the other side of things, on the, on the kind of political side of things, this... Uh, site is going to be earmarked for private development so the site's going to be sold like every every bloody site in Dublin City it seems these days is going to be sold to a private developer for private housing and that's not practical in a, in a housing um, sense 
it's not practical in a social sense to get rid of a social space and to put in private houses that will be out of reach for most ordinary people that live in the Drumcondra and Ballybock and Whitehall areas, you know. This is what, what you need in Dublin City. And I live 10 minutes away from Dublin City. I live in Portobello where the local council closed off public spaces, you know. What you need is more public spaces, uh, more amenities that people can enjoy. And Tolka Park is one of them. But also, at the same time, you need public land to be built um, on public spaces in, this, in the city instead of having councillors um, selling off public land to private developers. And it's great to hear about Sligo in relation to the showgrounds can't ever be sold. And there's a, there's a similar thing with Richmond Park in Inchicore. Uh, Pat's on that outright, um, and that's only a relatively recent thing. Um, but there is a de within the deeds of that, um, as long as there's no other alternative for Pat's to go, Richmond Park can't be sold. So you can't get rid of Richmond Park and make Pat's homeless like what happened to Shamrock Rovers. And I think, again, going back to the football side of things, with Tolka Park, Shell's leaving Tolka Park, they, that's been their home for about 32, 33 years. They've put roots in there and they've worked hard to put roots in there. You know, you talk to most Shells fans and most Shells fans I know personally are from the north side where Shells have had roots for, you know, the best part of, you know, 23, 24 years. So it, it would be crazy to, for them to just be kind of parachuted into um, Fibsworth, which is all, it's, it's a Bowes heartland. And, you know, there's no getting away from that. Bowes are going to be the anchor tenants, essentially, even though they said it'll, it'll be shared. If you had a greenfield site where both clubs were going and starting afresh, that's different. But that's not happening, mm. you know. And they, something similar, as I mentioned earlier, the Pats board wanted us to move to Tala. And there was a campaign, the Pats for Richmond campaign about 2006, before Gary Keller came in and, and, and bought the club. But that was the same idea, that we would, be, we would be secondary tenants in a stadium where Shamrock Rovers have had put roots in for the previous 10 or 15 years. And it wouldn't have been practical. And the same goes for Shells. I mean, I don't hope they, they gain success anytime soon, but at the same time, you're getting one rid of a public community that's a historic part of Dublin City, until you're going to put private developments there that will be out of reach of the ordinary working class people that live in that city who've been starved of another public space. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a huge, huge issue. Um, like, um, and it's just like it happens so regularly anyways, like, gifting public land sometimes they're not even paying for it providing that yeah. they're actually building like they're actually gifting public land to private developers they build housing that's quote-unquote affordable but is up on half a million for an affordable house um and yeah then you have like Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil councillors and TDs saying that the left are opposing to housing when we're opposing <laughs> Uh, hand in hand in like a you know public land to, tactic uh, they've been using for years yeah 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 you vote against uh you vote against private developments and sell off of public land to private developers and somehow you're voting against housing yeah <laughs> shocking no, amenities like football grounds are extremely important and making cities like dublin and urban areas around ireland more livable for ordinary people something that we should all be fighting for and i think football and football clubs play a big part in that i think yeah. it's a, i think i think it's one one learning from history right you know you look at what happened to shamrock rovers with lemelore park you know looking you know that shouldn't have happened in to begin with and it shouldn't happen again and it can't be allowed to happen again it's taken rovers shamrock rovers up to now 
to kind of get back on their feet where they're actually a community club in Tala and where they have, where they're the best club in the country again. It's taken them, 30, what, you know, 34 years to get to that level. You know, um, at the at the low ebb that shells are at now, I don't think they'd survive that, you know, to be totally honest with you on that football side of things. So Clemelore Park shouldn't shouldn't be a private housing estate. It should still be the home of Shamrock Rovers, you know, and that's what it is. It's a private housing estate in a leafy suburb where the houses cost a hell of a lot of money. And, you know, you think of Drumcondra, it's, it can be a bit of a, it can be kind of deemed as a bit of a leafy suburb as well, um, although it'll be closer to the city centre. Uh, old red brick housing and stuff like that, you can guarantee that this housing that's going to be there is going to be going for, you know, 650, 700 grand. Yeah, but like you look at, even just to bring it back to a bit of the football inside of it, like Shelburne at the football club, they don't want this either. Like, I mean, they don't want to move to the Indian Park. Their hand is kind of enforced. I think a couple of weeks ago, they put out a statement about, you know, the development of Indian Park or yeah. relocation or whatever. And they didn't mention Bohemians in the statement once. They just referred to just, right, yeah. they were coming out with stuff saying like, oh, we'll be sharing it with another club. All this kind of stuff, like, you know, just pure pettiness. But like, it's understandable, you know, Talca Park is like, as you said, Kevin, it's a historic ground. I mean, it's an integral part of the football in this country, really. I mean, it's kind of, it's in, it's decrepit now at the minute. Like it's, it mm-hmm. looks absolutely appalling, which is an absolute shame to see as well. But like, it's still one of those historic grounds and I'd be all for, you know, saving Talca Park because it's just, you know, it's, it's earned its place, really. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as I said, I've spent, I've, I've been there countless times, spent great nights there. When I start going back to the games, going to games back in the 90s, what's it, 26 years since I started going to games. And back then, Talca Park, even without the, what I call the Lego stand in the, in the, um, in the Drunkandra end, even without that stand, it was the best, it was the best uh, stadium in the country. You know, and it was years, it was only years later after Turner's Cross became all-seater and all-covered, did Turner's Cross surpass it before Tallow was built, you know? So, like, it was the it was the kind of the gem of Irish football right through the 90s and into the early 90s as well. So, for that alone, like, you know, for the memories there, the history of it, you know, like, I think it's madness. And I think you're right, Donald, that the club now and the position they're in, their hand has been forced because... I think the reason why this campaign has gathered legs as well is because of the immediacy of the problems at Shelbourne. And they know that they probably won't survive after a few years in uh, after a few years in Daily Mills. Because as I said already, you know, it's a Bowes Heartland and Bowes are a club on the up. Shells may come back up this year, but you know, they're still not they're still not at a level that Bowes are at, at the moment either. On the yeah, I agree. I agree. You know, obviously the FAI, you know, have grossly just neglected the, yeah. the League of Ireland. Like, it was like, there was one year I was, the league was starting and I was on the FAI uh, main Facebook page and like, it was me and a few others going, do you know your league has started today? They hadn't like even a Facebook post, like up over, you know, like it's a hundred grand to win the league and you have like the, um, like the CEO on what is it 300 400 grand uh, of the FAI like it's just insane um but like you know I think there's like huge you know massive things that need to be done to try and promote and market the league mm-hmm. of Ireland I think you touched on something there as well Nigel that like 
one thing you need is community. And um, I was listening to a podcast with Conan Bourne on it this morning. And obviously, I'm a Pats fan, and Conan Bourne is one of my heroes as a as a player, you know. But he's he's very good in his an, an analysis as well. So you know, one thing he mentioned was community, and he'd done community work when he was at Fingo. He was a uh, kind of double up as a community officer as well as a, a goal scorer. But you know, this is the thing. You know, if you talk about community clubs in the league. Sligo Rovers, for sure, are one of them. You know, Derry City are another. I think in the last few years, Pats have done a lot of work. Bowles, another community club, you know. They ha- a football club has to be the, the lifeblood of a community. And, you know, try the United, more great work as well, you know. So, like, these are all clubs in working-class areas, in working-class towns, that are the lifeblood and heart and soul and community, and all the community, you know. I think that if you do community work, whether it's even just going to schools, uh, bringing schools in and soccer camps and stuff like that. You know, it's a big thing. When I was a child, uh, Pats still, in, I'm from Kondalkin, um, Pats were and still are the club in Kondalkin. And one of the things they'd done in the 90s when they, when success started coming, they used to visit schools. They used to play friendlies, pre-season friendlies, back in their winter football days against local uh, Leinster Senior League sides in Kondalkin. They used to play them in their home pitch. You used to get about 300 Pats fans that had travelled to that. You know, so that's keeping things in the community. And these are kind of things that, you know, you look at you look at other clubs that just don't seem to do that work and their crowds would reflect that a little bit. Like Waterford United, or Waterford as they are, you know, they're, they, they've gone through their own troubles. Like they don't seem to be a club. Well, they have a loyal fan base embedded in the community as such. I mean, I know the RSC is a bit out of the way. You know, it's not. It's not kind of in the heart of a. It's not beside a housing estate or beside a, an urban area as such. But you know that's the club that stands out. Is they don't do a lot. Bray in the last few years have done great work in their new ownership, uh, of being the heart of a community. You know, and these these things pay dividends in the long run. You look at Sligo success, you know, uh, on the pitch and off the pitch. You know, the fundraising that the Sligo Rover supporters do is amazing. Like you know, I've never seen anything like it. You know, a Pats there is uh, the patron saints um, that do that do a lot of good work, and they they're separate from the club. Uh, the chairman of the patron saints is uh, is on the board of Pats and has a say from the supporters' point of view, and he's a supporters liaison officer. The patron saints pay for the stand behind the goal in the intercorrent, um, and they've they've paid for defibrillators for the players. They pay for equipment. So these are kind of initiatives supporters led initiatives that are also important as well as the community led initiatives by the clubs there's a guy at pats uh, named david morrissey and he's the community officer and he's only in the job i think about two three two two and a half years or so and he's done amazing work you know pats weren't pats were, were failing in the community for a number of years and now we have school kids that go you know pre-covid times go to the games all the time and you have nurseries and academies that feed into the other nurseries and academies that feed into the uh, underage elite leagues. You know, so I think community stuff and supporters-led initiatives like are are a no-brainer for for any club in the league. Yeah, I agree. They certainly are a no-brainer. And just to bring it back to what you said there, Kevin, about Pat's going playing friendlies against teams in the Leinster Senior League, like. All it takes is that, just a, just a game. And, you know, there could be a young fella there watching his brother playing for Clondalkin or whatever, whoever mm-hmm. Pats will be playing, and be like, wow, you know, this, Pats are a good side, and I'll go back and watch them when the, when the season starts. And that's all it takes, you know. All yeah. Like, you see something like that, and you'd be you'd be hooked. You'd nearly be hooked going, like, you know, and then you could 
go to the match and enjoy it or whatever and you're going to end up you know being there for the rest of your days like following St. Pat's or Shams or Bohemians or anyone like just off the top of my head like those clubs as an example yeah my brother know. my brother had played for schoolboys at Pat's for years but at the same time uh, my two brothers when they were in secondary school they used to get free tickets every now and then because uh, the club used to go there I mean to be fair to Pat Allen there's a lot of issues with Pat Allen but to be fair to him uh, as a, as someone who got the whole community, not just in Chicago, for example, at Pats, but you know, Ballyfermot, Palmerstown, Condock, and Luke, and all the heartlands, you know, it's important to get into those areas. And nonetheless, the senior league sides, um, Moyle Park, they're they're they folded since, but they they used to they used to have a kind of it was like a challenge trophy against Pats every single season, and Pat Dolan and the players and the managers used to sign autographs for everybody and take pictures with people and all that kind of stuff. Like So these are things that clubs can go back to. I know it's an elite level now and it's a bit different and there's a different level and there, there's no correlation because, you know, winter football with the LSL and that. But these are little kind of community gestures that can be done. And for example, Pats, going back to Pats again, one thing that, that Pats have done in recent years, uh, there was a suicide of a well-known Pats fan about six years ago now. And the year after the club decided, along with the patron saints, the supporters uh, group decided to do what was called the Hanno Cup. This guy's name was Niall Hannigan. And for two or three years, uh, they had the Hanno Cup and it was a fundraiser. And Richmond Park was open to the club that day. Uh, Jer O'Brien, Liam Buckley, who were involved in the club at the time, were, came down, presented trophies, presented medals. And it was a family kind of day out. I mean... For some of us, we were drinking in the stands, watching our mates play at Pats. But, uh, you know, it was that kind of initiative. And players come into the pub afterwards and say hello to everybody and thank them for, for all their work. So just these things that some clubs do. And I think it's important. And I know Sligo do, would do similar kind of stuff because, you know, it's, it's, it, it makes no sense to not do something like that. It kind yeah. of highlights the, um, like you know, what shells will be fearing then, like, if they have to move, Absolutely. you know? Yeah, I mean, that's the thing, you know, they have they have a link up with DCU, uh, <clears throat> and but I don't think they do the kind of, the same type of community work that, that Pats would do, that Sligo Rovers would do, that maybe Derry, Derry would do. And then you look at Dundalk as well, you know, where's the community connection with Dundalk, you know? There's nothing there. And Dundalk fans will tell you the same kind of thing because there's that complete disconnect between an owner who wants instant success and a club in a big town who want the community club to support because they're, they're a one club town, you know. They're, you know, and they're, they're, they are historically a big club even before their most recent success, but there's no, there's no uh, link between the community and the club itself. And that's one of the reasons that's making the Dundalk fans really angry. But right? like, it's, it's not it's not difficult to embed yourself in the community like that. You know, there's loads of things you can do that, like, not even in a football sense, like just to bring it back to Sligo again. Sorry, but uh, like every baby that's born in Sligo this year is given a Sligo Rovers jersey. Do you know? Brilliant. Like that's just the it's just the, even just little gestures like that. You know, every baby that's born in the hospital will be given a Sligo Rovers jersey upon, upon arrival as such. And, uh, you know, it's, it's little things like that, just little touches like that, you know, that just, like, let you know that, like, that you're, you're part of something, you know. Yeah. Rovers are part of something in Sligo, you know. It's it's just, it's it's a purely community club. And, like, doing things like that is not difficult. You know, it's a great idea and it's a great initiative or whatever. And, of course, you know, 
not all clubs want to be doing the exact same thing as their rivals up the road. But, you know, coming up with these kind of ideas and just getting more involved, it's not hard. And, like, for a club as successful as Dundalk, I mean, you'd wonder why, how or why they weren't doing things like this or more things like that, even before Peak Six came in, you know, just Mm. to kind of embed themselves and really kind of put down some serious foundations, like, you know, St. Pat's have or Sligo or Bray have, you know? Yeah, I think think every club at one stage or another, particularly in the last 10 years, has kind of... Taking their eye off the ball a little bit because obviously in the League of Ireland more than most other leagues in, in Europe, success is cyclical. So it's never constant, you know, ever, ever, you know. There's no monopoly of any club, maybe for a few years. So I think some clubs can, and it's happened at Pats, uh, can take their eye off the ball a little bit and say, okay, we're going to focus on results here. And, and I think that kind of comes back to no forward planning and stuff like that. And I think one thing that would help, uh, that would help kind of, rein things in would be a fan ownership model i mean i think the 50 plus one i don't see much point of in the league of ireland but i think fan ownership has worked obviously in sligo i think finn harps bowers of course are the most well known you know so i think fan ownership in uh, the league of ireland is the kind of only step forward i don't know if dundalk have any kind of um membership scheme uh, similar to what pats have in the patron saints where they're not a part of the club but they kind of run with the club. I know Shells have the 1895 trusts, which are similar. They're not a, they're not kind of on, like they're not going to run the club as such. But I think, you know, I remember what was it, about 15 years ago, Rovers set up their 400 club when they were struggling before they moved to Tala and they were playing out of Talca Park. Around a little bit before that, I think Pats had set up a 500 club. And these were good, good supporter-led initiatives, you know. So, I mean, even at Pats, I mean, I'm not a, a patron. I, always, I have an email there that I need to get back to, but that's another story to actually sign up for the patrons. But the idea of, of a club that isn't a member's own club to have a membership group outside of the club is that if anything ever happens to the ownership, that that group is there to save the club. The supporters are there, you know. The patron saints aren't at the level that they want to be at, of course, but it's still important to have them there in the medium term, kind of like politically, like socialists in, in the doll, you know. They're there to help in the medium term and to make things a little bit better. But overall, they want to take over the running of society in a social sense of the running of a football club in a in a footballing sense, you know. But I think they're they're important and they're things that need to be looked at. Yeah, definitely. Have structures in place there in case when, mm. you know, when and if things go wrong. Yeah, because they always will. Mm. Cool. I think we'll leave it there. Um, thanks very much for joining us. Um, enjoy the rest of the Euros. And obviously, I think we need to encourage people to get out and support your local club. Um, that's the most important thing. Yeah, I think uh, last point would be that with people starved of actual football for so long, I think it's a good thing for League of Ireland because one... The fallout from the from the Super League will have a lot of will have a lot of um, would have caused a lot of uh, anger from uh, you know passive kind of Man United, Liverpool, Chelsea fans, and, and that in Ireland. So they might want to seek out their own local club, and because of a starvation of things to do in football and lack of football, I think 
pass, passive and lapsed League of Ireland fans will come out on their numbers as well as the the kind of more hardcore that have begun regularly. So I think it'll be a good it might when when things you know it's always about when things kind of get back to normal. Um, I think the League of Ireland will be the better for it because crowds will be up and I think there'll be a different kind of excitement in the next couple of years. Fingers crossed. Yeah, I'll just uh, just to agree with Kevin there. I mean, you know, you can question Spurs' involvement in the Super League, <laughs> whether they were entitled to be there or not. Now that's a, that's a, again another story for another day. But uh, I just felt so disillusioned with the whole run in of the Premier League, following with the whole fallout of the Super League. You know, I was I nearly didn't care, and like you mm. know, I'd be a, a big enough Spurs man myself now, and uh, I would care usually. But like I just I just couldn't find myself to register an interest in it. So like as just as well, it was a, a League of Ireland fan anyways because the Rovers are doing well at the moment. So, uh, but no, I would have definitely hope it would encourage people to go out and just support their local team wherever it may be, be it Cavan Teeley, Wexford, even down in the first division or, you know, Shamrock Rovers, Pats, Bowles, Sligo even. And uh, yeah, like just got to keep in mind that it's not the Premier League. It's not going to be the best football you've ever seen either, but it's its, it's his own product. Like, and uh, mm-hmm. there's definitely a space. There's definitely something in the League of Ireland for everyone, I think. I think it's a good, it's a better standard than people give it credit for, and it's much more technical Absolutely. than it's ever been, which Absolutely. is stand things in good stead. Yeah, definitely. Um, there is some seriously boring Premiership games. <laughs> uh, and without, the, without supporters, uh, a lot of the Premier League games have been shy. To be yeah, yeah, yeah. But, anyways, yeah, thanks again for joining us. Um, I'll give your blog a plug. It's a medium. What's mm-hmm. at Marks of Saint? At Marks of Saint, uh, capital yeah. M, capital S. And you'll find the same on Twitter, at Marks of Saint. And thanks very much, Donald, for joining us. No problem, yeah. guys. Enjoy the rest of the Euros. Mm-hmm.